0: thank you that we can gather together and learn more about your word. We thank you for your blessings and your mercy. Your mercy is new every morning. And Lord, we pray that as we look at being filled with the spirit and the idea of being endowed by the spirit, as you sent your son and he ascended into the heavens, Lord, we pray that we would have clarity, that there wouldn't be division among us regarding the spirit, but rather unity concerning the gospel and the confession of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, I want to build on something that Bob had mentioned last week, and it's a message that's been in my mind for some time. If you recall, last week, Bob had said that when it comes to deliverance, being delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, as we see in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that that issue of deliverance from one domain to the other is not an issue that is brought about technologically, but relationally. And so the idea is deliverance is not technological but relational. How are you delivered? Well, it's not through finding the right person who can manipulate the demonic realm or know the language of the demons or that knows the names of the demons, but rather deliverance comes through faith alone and Christ alone. In the same way, I've always been convinced that when it comes to the term in Ephesians five eight, being filled with the Spirit, I think some Christians have the conception that some Christians are a court low in the Spirit, (laughs) but other Christians really are brimming to the full with the Spirit, and they think of it as a spatial issue. But what we're going to see is that it's actually, again, a relational issue. Every Christian is endowed by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is commanded, therefore, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but rather be filled by the Spirit. Being filled by the Spirit means that we acquiesce to the doctrines of Christ rather than the doctrines of this world. If we acquiesce to the doctrines of the world, we're living in debauchery. If we are filled with the Spirit, it means that you and I are submitting to the doctrines of Christ and that which proceeds from God. That's the command. And so today we're going to be looking at four things, and we'll continue this next week as well. Number one, we're going to show that it's false that some Christians have the Spirit and others do not. Or that some Christians have more of the Spirit than others. We'll be showing that that is a falsehood. What we will be showing that is true is that every single person who claims Jesus Christ must belong to the Spirit. And we'll show that exegetically from Romans 8, 8 through 9. Third thing we're going to see is that Christ is the baptizer. How many times have you thought of spirit baptism where you think, well, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who's baptizing me? Often that's the repeated phrase in Christendom. But when we look at the scriptures, it was John the Baptist himself who said, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me, who is that? Is that the Spirit? Or is it the Messiah? It's the Messiah. He's going to baptize you in the Spirit and with fire. Who's the baptizer? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he ascends and he sends the Spirit, he is the one who is baptizing all of his people within the confines of the Spirit for our protection and our edification. We're going to learn in this section that we're covering that, yes, Jesus Christ is the great baptizer. I want to give you first, though, a quote, and this is a quote before I move on, from Ephesians 5.18. It's a commentary written by F.F. Bruce, and I just want to set the stage with this quote Because he refutes the idea that being filled by the Spirit is a spatial issue. And I thought it would be apropos to read it first. Listen to F.F. Bruce, great scholar of the New Testament. He said this. He said, the antithesis between wine, remember, do not be filled with wine, right, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, the antithesis between wine and Spirit does not suggest that the Spirit is a sort of fluid with which one may be filled, Any more than the co-location of baptism in water with baptism in the Spirit suggests that the Spirit is a sort of fluid in which one may be dipped. Whatever grammatical constructions are used, the Spirit operates as a personal subject. After all, he says, the Lord is the one who is Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. What F.F. Bruce is saying is being filled by the Spirit is a relational issue, not a spatial one. Now, what I thought I would do is I want to give you an example from the Old Testament that you and I are going to carry forward to the New Testament. And it's an analogy that I think we can take with us to see the concept of being filled by the Spirit. I want us to think about the concept of God's Shekinah glory. The term Shekinah, by the way, doesn't exist in the Hebrew Bible, but it does stem from a Hebrew term, the verb Shekan. The term Shekan means dwell. Dwell. And so the Shekinah glory has to do with the dwelling presence of God, whether it would be in the tabernacle in the time of Moses or in the temple from Solomon onward. So, for example, let me give you some Old Testament text to show you this. This is Exodus 25.8. And here God is explaining why the Israelites should build him this tabernacle that is going to follow with them and therefore the Lord will dwell with them. Leviticus 25.80 says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Does everyone see the term dwell there in blue? That's the verb shekin. And that's the term that we have for Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory is derived from the verb shekin. So the Shekinah glory was the dwelling presence of God. It was his glory that filled this tabernacle, but later also the temple. So, for example, now we're getting to the temple after Solomon builds it. Here's the dedication and what happens. 1 Kings eight ten through 11, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, again, this is the temple in Jerusalem, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this glory that you're seeing in this text here, let me pull up my pointer. As you see in blue, that's the Shekinah glory. So if you took the idea of dwelling and the idea of glory, that's the idea. The Shekinah glory that dwelt among the Israelites was not a spatial issue per se. It was a relational one. And what I mean by that is because God's unique Shekinah glory dwelt in Israel, did that mean that he ceased to be omnipresent? Did that mean that he certainly wasn't where the Philistines were? Why? Well, because the Shekinah glory is in the tabernacle. Did that mean, as David said, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I descend down to Sheol, you are there. Where can I flee from your presence? What's the answer to that question? Nowhere. Because God is omnipresent. So why then the Shekinah glory? Was it a spatial issue or a relational one? Well, it's a relational one. Meaning that, yes, God is omnipresent, but it's these people, Israel... That God is uniquely chosen to be in a saving relationship with, and therefore they get his unique presence. They get his Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory, his dwelling presence, shows that they have his favor. Let's, um, I don't have this in my notes here, but let's fast forward to the time when Israel had gotten into such great apostasy that the Lord left. Remember you see that in Ezekiel 10 through 11? What happened is the Lord said, you don't want a relationship with me. Your apostasy is so great. Where did the glory go? It went out from the temple to the Mount of Olives and it went up. What happened in the New Testament when Jesus was rejected by Israel? He went out to the Mount of Olives. He said, your house has left you desolate. Where did he ascend from? At his ascension, the Mount of Olives. He followed the same pattern. The glory of the Lord departed again. It's relational. It's not spatial. Now, I'm going to give you an example here that kind of illustrates the misnomer that the Israelites had. Do you remember that the Israelites used to bring their Ark of the Covenant into battle? And the idea was, well, yes, we may live for other pagan deities. We may live no different than the pagan world. But after all, we've got God in a box. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. He resides above the cherubim. And if we get into trouble, we're going to break out the box and we're going to bring it into battle and we're going to win. They thought the issue was spatial, not relational. And so I'm going to show you what happens here. The context of this passage I'm going to be showing you from First Samuel is, do you remember God was going to judge Eli? This is the time of First Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges in Israel. That's the time frame we are in. Well, one of the great problems that Israel had is their priesthood had gone apostate, and so, goes, so as goes the priest, so goes the nation, Right? The priests are indicative of the hearts of the people. And if you remember, Eli had two sons. It was was it Phinehas and Hophni. And these were men who blasphemed the Lord. And so the Lord promised that he was going to judge them. Well, sure enough, that happens at the hands of the Philistines. The, The Philistines rout the Israelites. And therefore, the Israelites are decimated because of their sin. Well, the Israelites kind of regroup. And if you recall the story... They say, well, let's break out God in the box. We're going to break out the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, we're living like the pagan world. We have no inclination to having a relationship with God through faith. But we're going to break out the box. We're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to battle, and surely we'll win then. Well, they don't. And in fact, God, his Ark, is taken by the Philistines to Ashdod. That's the capital, one of the five capital cities that they had in Philistia at the time. So that's where we pick it up here. But let's look at what happens here as the Ark of the Covenant is in Philistine captivity. It says in 1 Samuel 5, 2-4, through 4, "...then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon," that's their false god, "...and set it by Dagon. When the Ashadites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord." So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So notice, Dagon isn't doing so well. So do you remember what the, what the Philistines say? Is We've got to get rid of this ark of the covenant. It's bringing a curse upon our land. So of course eventually the ark is returned. But here's the simple point that I want you to see is that as Dagon falls before the Lord, it's not a symbol because simply the Lord was there in the Shekinah glory. It was a sign that even though that they had the ark, they didn't have his favor. Now, did the Israelites have his favor? only in the sense that God made unilateral promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he could swear the oath by no one greater, as it says in Hebrews, he swore the oath by himself. And the only reason that they weren't wiped out as many of the other enemies were is because God swore the oath. So, mercifully, God allows the Shekinah glory eventually to return back to Israel. But I want you to learn the lesson that the Israelites did. The Israelites made the mistake of thinking, we'll break God out in the box, we're going to win a battle. They thought the issue was spatial, when in fact the real issue is relational. The same is concerning the filling of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a spatial issue in which you and I are a court low at times, and we just need to be filled, or we have a second blessing. In which we were really without the spirit, completes, the spirit's completeness, and then we need to be filled to the full. But rather being filled by the spirit means that you and I aren't like the Israelites who live as pagans, but rather we acquiesce to the terms of the spirit. There are two ages, yes.:
1: I looked, Steve, up, the, I looked up that word uh, that I may dwell in Was it Exodus? Yes, um, and it talks about to, that the spirit is—it's it's a settle down, to settle down. It's a, its an idea of permanence, and that's—you know—it's to reside permanently and to stay. So this yeah. concept that oh, I have less uh, less today, and maybe a little more tomorrow, and I'm going right. to have more of the spirit by myself. Um, yes, it's—it's it's a permanent thing. It's it, God said I'm going to settle down there.
0: Amen. Well said. In fact, we see that as David says, where does the Lord dwell forever? Jerusalem. And one day that will be true, that Messiah will reign from Jerusalem, whether it's the Jerusalem here or the new Jerusalem in the heavens. Yes, Rich. It's a permanence that God dwells with his people.
2: Yeah, yeah I
1: think that this is indicative of what the Hebrew people did, putting God in a box. Think yeah. we can manipulate him. We can bring him out to battle. We'll win the battle, bring out the box. I think we do the same thing today. I think that's really indicative of human nature. Of oh, yeah. We think we can manipulate the Holy Spirit and say, oh, maybe a charismatic group, they think that they can manipulate and do say this or do this or say that and, you know, have more power or whatever. It's, it's just really kind of scary how we feel like we've got control over God.
0: Well said. You know, that was the example I was making a few weeks ago with the oath-taking. Do you remember Jephthah, the judge who makes the foolish oath? And I mentioned that I thought it was a pagan one. The idea behind his oath is, well, I'll manipulate God to do what I, what I want him to do. Well, why not just trust that he'll do what he said he would do? So the idea is, in oath-taking, in Jephthah's case, it was a manipulation of God rather than a trusting of God. And again, it's kind of what you're saying is sometimes we manipulate God. We put him in the Ark of the Covenant. We bring him out for battle when we need him. And then we put him away and live like the pagans the rest of the time. And I think that's exactly right, Rich. Yes,
2: Scott. Ah. Uh- just uh, reminded about uh, Rodney H- Howard Brown, the Holy Ghost bartender.
0: Oh, the Holy Ghost bartender. <laughs> yeah, why didn't you explain what does the Holy Ghost bartender do? Well, he he was,
2: I guess he was doing the slain in the spirit stuff. Sure. And and uh, oh, and then one time he's he would say, "Touch not God's anointed."
0: Okay. <laughs> Sure, right, right. So, um, do you know that name? I don't know
2: the name. Special anointing.
3: I do. But I have okay. Here, but, yeah. Uh, Thanks, Scott, for bringing that up. You, know, you might want to mention, even with the relationship, there, there's a, how do you say, a mediation, so no you yes. don't see God and die. Or, you
0: know, right, just like Moses.
3: Moses in the cleft. Right?
0: Exactly, yeah. What God was, or what Bob was just pointing out is that God has mediation in that we don't see God truly as he is. So even The spirit dwelling with Israel was a mediated form in which they could handle. Uh, Think about when Moses meets with God, he's hid in the cleft of the rock. He may see the caboose of God's glory, but not the fullness lest he die. For no man can see God as he is and die. So the coming of Christ is a mediated form. God becoming man. Um, Yes, Laverne.
4: Well, since you said that, it makes me think about the Mount of Transfiguration when they all, Jesus peeled back his humanity and revealed his glory. Yes. So they did see it, but.
0: Yeah, not in its fullness, right. I know what you're saying. In other words, that's a foreshadowing of the parousia, it's a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. You have Elijah and Moses. Now, when do Elijah and Moses come again? in the parousia in the 70th week of Daniel. You'll see them again. And so it's this foreshadowing of this eschatological glory. Just prior to that, Jesus says there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Do you know what preterists do, do with that? Preterists are those who want to put all end times eschatology into 70 AD. By the way, the reason they do that is the reformers were beating up the Roman Catholics, saying your pope is the Antichrist. Well, the way for the Catholics to get around that was to say, well, no, these things didn't happen now, or they're not going to happen in the future. They all happened in 70 AD. Hmm. So preterism is a Roman Catholic doctrine to take the pope away from being the Antichrist, saying it all happened in 70 AD. Well, the problem with that, of course, is there's a lot of reformers who got into preterism. And so they're just adopting a Roman Catholic scheme But the point is, in the exegesis of that passage, whether it's Matthew or it's Mark, right after Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory, immediately the next section is the transfiguration. Because the transfiguration, as you're saying, Laverne, is this foreshadowing of His glory. It's not the fullness of His glory. He's not in His resurrected state. He's not been glorified. Remember, even Jesus says, I've not gone and yet been glorified with the Father. So it is a foreshadowing of that. And yes, I think you're right in seeing that that was a mediated form. That's a good reading of the text, yes.
4: And then when the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, no, yeah, um, are in the 70th week, they are on the street corner witnessing, but then they die. And the people just leave their bodies there (laughs) and think they're, because they're celebrating the fact that they're dead. But then they rise again. That's Sounds
0: right. Amazing. It is amazing. It is. And you see that one has the power to shut up the skies. The other one sends the same types of plagues upon the land as Moses. Clearly, yeah. they're being shown. And that's why Jesus, when he's asked, is Elijah coming? And he says, yes, he is coming. Mm-hmm. And he has come. Yes. And so he sees a twofold nature that there is an Elijah-like figure who comes on the scene, John the Baptist. And then there's one who comes in the 70th week prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the second coming. So exactly yeah. right. Yep, very good reading.
3: Yeah, Ron. I, I was reminded of uh, the
2: bartender, right? Holy
0: the Ghost Holy Spirit bartender, bartender right.
2: <laughs> Just to go back to your, <clears throat> your spatial versus relational. <clears throat> yeah. People flock to Toronto. They flock to, I think, Brownsville something church in Florida. They flock to that because the Holy Spirit,
0: he's working here. Join God where he's working Wherever he's
3: doing amazing things, go there and join him. So it's spatial to them. It's a
0: spatial issue, exactly right. Yes. Very good, Ron. Yeah, it's not a spatial issue. Has God lost his omnipresence? Did he lose one of his incommunicable divine attributes simply because some theologian says no? (laughs) He's still omnipresent, well said. Yes, Paul.
3: Yeah, uh, to understand the Holy Spirit without the motive of wanting to... um, uh, to use it for my
0: personal benefit, conditional or any other way. It can't be a bad thing, however. It can't be bad. I mean, just be, if we're trying to understand it, and, uh, you know, that can't be. It's not like reading scripture to understand Jesus, but on a biblical basis, not necessarily on a, the basis of trying to get it to make my life better or something I like that. I see what you're saying. So, in other words, we, yeah, we can't just have it just be uh, self help kind of self engrandizement type of theology. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well said. It's not just for our personal benefit. Although the Holy Spirit does benefit us, he brings us to Christ, but it's not in the, if I say, hey, you know what, I need a new garage or a new car. It's not all the wish lists that we may have in this life, but it's truly conforming us to the image of the Son so that we're going to be raised from the dead and we're going to be in glory with the, with our Messiah who purchased us. So yeah, well said, Paul. Uh, yes, Paul, uh, back there
5: and I don't know if this fits as I'm thinking but it you know kind of makes it uh, concrete for uh, relational but when you look at Exodus uh, 24 9 Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders went up and they saw God the God of Israel but then you flip over to what happens to Abihu and Nadab is they offer the strange fire. So it became a relational thing. They thought they could go rogue and do whatever they wanted, and look what happened.
0: That's right, that's right. So they offer fire that God never ordained, thinking, well, he's going to have to accept our strange fire, this profane fire that the Lord has never appointed and never commanded. They think, well, that's good enough. Bob, you had an article written... Uh, the evangelical version of Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember that CIC article that you wrote on that? Well,
3: I'm, I've written so many, I'm going okay. back and finding them. <laughs> um, by the way, we're getting a lot of um, good feedback on the Critical Issues podcast that we're doing on these Dutch sheets and the New Apostolic Reformation. Yes. But I want to point out something that When the Rodney Howard Brown thing was happening, the group I was a part of in the 80s, were part of the charismatic, someone we knew went to the meetings for a week and came back, and so when she got back, she wasn't sure if it was good or bad, she just went, spent the time, came back, and said, well, a lot of people, a lot of excitement, people were laughing, I said, I got a question for you. And this is when I was trying to see what do we say? How do we know these things? Did at any time during the whole week of meetings, they say anything about blood atonement, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of Christ, repentance, and and preaching that people need to turn to Christ? And she said, no, I never heard that. So then I was concerned about How do you have a revival without the preaching of christ and the claim that this would be something like in acts there's a problem because every single message in the in the book of acts mentions christ and resurrection amen and so i said well isn't that a problem if you have a revival without preaching christ I think part of the problem not only the relational and spatial which is great categories is also epistemological in other words the antichrist and Christ according to Thessalonians both have a lot of similarities other than the lie and the truth that's right one is false and the other is the true Christ so the issue isn't just whether Satan's meetings, whether they're from Satan or not, has power or God has more power and the issue is how do we know what's the true work of the spirit? So I wrote an article about that and in every case it's the person and work of Christ. Amen. Jesus said that he, the Holy Spirit when he comes, the helper will speak of me yeah. and so that isn't just for yeah. more of a charismatic or Um, Pentecostal or whatever group we want to be talking about it also goes for the seeker movement yeah that's right because the same thing happened when we talked to Rick Warren and they had this all these people the three legged stool and so on when he got this opportunity to speak at President Obama's inauguration and pray and, Mm. and say quite a few words he didn't say a word about Christ and the gospel. Okay, so then um, if you don't speak about Christ, you're not really showing that the Holy Spirit's at work. A lot of the people movements don't have a relationship with God. So we also have to ask how do we know what is a true work of the Spirit?
0: Amen. And we see that in 1 John 4, uh, 2. Remember, Bob taught us in 1 John. 1 John 4, 2, you'll know that the Spirit is from God. Because he confesses the spirit that Jesus Christ, that Christ has come in the flesh. Remember he had those who were in docetism who said, well, no, he's really not in the flesh. It only seems that he's human. No, it's Christ come in the flesh. So the confession of Christ in the flesh is a work of the spirit. If you don't have a confession of Christ, you don't have a work of the spirit. That's the whole point of the spirit. Um, Back to your example with um, Luann, the Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire I think about how, what an assault is against God and what he's commanded. Think about in the New Testament time now that we're living in, the New Covenant period, you have people doing Enneagrams. Okay, so the idea of an Enneagram is you're going to find out your particular personality, and the goal of it ultimately is to bring you back to a pristine self that the scriptures declare never existed. So it really is a denial of original sin. So let's ask ourselves the question, where did God under the new covenant command that if you're going to be sanctified, you have to do an Enneagram? Well, he never did. So Nadab and Abihu say, Lord, you never commanded this fire, but you're going to just have to accept it. Well, in the new covenant, we say, well, God, you never commanded Enneagrams or Lectio Divina or this mystical practice or that mystical practice, but you're just going to have to accept it because we are who we are. Well, no, that doesn't work that way. God will not accept it, and it shows that the Christ who is the Lord of the New Covenant is not their Lord, those who engage in such practices. And so, yes, we see the New Testament version today in people doing the practices that Christ has never ordained. Absolutely. Laverne?
4: We also learned that Nadab and Abihu were drunk, and that greatly affected their behavior in ordering the fire. They... Um, some believe that they were caught up with the excitement and just wanted to get involved and, you know, and they weren't thinking clearly. So wow, how important. telling
0: is that? Very good point regarding Ephesians 5.18. Do not be consumed with alcohol or drunk with alcohol, but be filled by the Spirit. Right? The, remember when Paul says that in Ephesians 5.18, being filled with alcohol leads to debauchery. The term for debauchery is the things that the pagans do. Not thinking clearly. But submitting to the Spirit leads to clarity of thought. It leads to being governed by the Scriptures and what Christ has ordained through His Word that we would live out the moral will of God. And that's not for some Christians. That's for every Christian. Absolutely. So it's a good good take on that. Yeah, very good. I'm sorry. Yeah, Steve.
1: And I'm sure you're going to get to this, but there's parallel passages uh, in Colossians and Ephesians that Paul speaks of. in Ephesians 5 uh, 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But bef- he says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music to your heart to the Lord. And the, the parallel passages in Colossians. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there are parallel passages. Exactly. One, one Paul is saying dwell in the word, make yourself at home in the word, and be in, in the other passage he's saying to be filled with the spirit. And I looked up that word filled in 518. It's a cramming down. Yes. It's, it's a cramming down. It's a full, it's a done deal. It's finished. Yes. That there's We have as much of the spirit as we're going to get.
0: Exactly. And it's funny. It's an imperative. So it's something we are to do. But it's also a divine passive. It's something that's been done. And so the idea is that we acquiesce to what's been done. We've been given the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, and therefore, are you going to live accordingly? Um, Let me go back to the story. I've given it, uh, I don't know if this ever makes sense to anyone. Normally, when I give the story, I get blank stares, but let me try it again. It always reminds me of the idea of being in the Spirit, reminds me of the story of D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, who was a famous evangelical scholar, he grew up in England, and he had to go to a tough English school. This is back maybe in the late 40s. His father was in the military during World War II, and apparently they stayed on there. Well, D.A. Carson remembers seeing the sign above the school room the uh, teacher's head. It said, no gum chewing, or gum chewing is prohibited, or whatever it said. And he thought how ironic, being that at the time he read that, he was chewing his gum. By the way, I'm chewing gum because I have GERD uh, reflux problem. But um, So the point is, he thought, how ironic. Here I'm chewing gum, and yet it's not allowed. Well, sure enough, shortly thereafter, the teacher says, you have to spit your gum out, and he wouldn't tolerate it. And the analogy is this, that that's what it is to live a life in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that at any one time, all Christians who are in the Spirit may be chewing gum or sinning. It's that it's not tolerated. And that's the idea when we submit to the Holy Spirit, we are acquiescing to the rule of God. We're acting as we truly are. Now, if we don't, it doesn't mean we lose the Spirit, we leave the camp of Christ, and we go back to the domain of darkness. That's not the point. The point is, remember in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Notice Paul doesn't say, well, he's going to leave if you do that. No, not for the new covenant believer, but the idea is live as you truly are. If you're really a believer in Jesus Christ, acquiesce to his doctrines, which come from where? The Spirit. The Spirit gave us the Scriptures. If you want to know what the Spirit says, don't go sit out in the sunlight and go hum, right? Or walk a labyrinth. What you do is you read and try to understand the author's intent because it was the author who was inspired by the Scripture, or, excuse me, inspired by the Spirit to give us the Scriptures. So remember, the author is inspired, not the reader, Right? The author is inspired, not the reader. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit who brings us to faith, but it's the author's intent that we have to come into contact. That's acquiescing to the Spirit. So let me give you a summary slide at this point. What I'm saying is that God is clearly omnipresent. He never loses that incommunicable attribute. He's always omnipresent. In this case with Israel and the Shekinah glory, think about God is where the Philistines are and he is where the Israelites are. So the question is, so then why the Shekinah glory? The Shekinah glory demonstrated that they uniquely, the Israelites had a saving relationship where the rest of the pagan world did not. In the same way, the spirit in us does not mean that the Holy Spirit ceases to be omnipresent, but rather that we uniquely have a saving relationship because we were brought to the saving relationship in Christ by the Spirit. And so think about in Israel's case that one day God is going to reign with them forever. Listen to what David said here regarding the Lord dwelling in Jerusalem. First Chronicles 23:25. is for David said, the Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people. That's the ultimate shalom that they're going to be given. And he dwells in Jerusalem forever. That will one day happen when the Messiah returns, sets up the millennial kingdom, and then from there, of course, we have the eternal states with the new Jerusalem. So yes, they uniquely have his favor. And one day, salvation will be a spatial issue in this sense. One day, you and I will be in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It will be our playground. And every unbeliever will be thrown into the lake of fire. But right now, you can't determine... Who is a believer or an unbeliever spatially? If you're in a crowd at the watching a football game, it's not spatially divided. There's going to be believers and unbelievers. You can't tell. As someone mentioned over here, you can't go to one place on the planet and find a greater anointing than another. It's not a spatial issue. For now, it's always going to be relational in the same way with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me talk about three views regarding the Holy Spirit and contrast them. The first view that some Christians have, and I've run into one, by the way, some years ago when I was at the workout club, he said that some Christians have the Spirit and others don't. Yes, we may have Jesus, but we don't have the Spirit. Now, to be fair, this would be an anomaly even among Pentecostals, who would say, yeah, every Christian has, in a sense, the Spirit, but they don't have the fullness of the Spirit, which ends up being a second blessing. And so that's the second view All Christians have the Spirit, but some have a second blessing being filled by the Spirit. So the idea is that you have two works of grace in Pentecostalism. The first work of grace is where you come to faith in Jesus. But you really have a Christian who is quote-unquote carnal or one who is weak until they have a second blessing in which they are filled by the Spirit. And this filling is evidenced in Pentecostalism by speaking in tongues. Now the problem with that, that is the idea of speaking in tongues being the prerequisite for demonstrating you have the Spirit, is Paul is very clear that not every Christian speaks in tongues. So if it is the sine qua non, in other words, without which you can't have the Spirit that is speaking in tongues, if that's true, then we should see data in the New Testament which says every Christian will speak in tongues. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 12.30. 1 Corinthians 12.30, and let's ask ourselves the question, do all speak in tongues? 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul is talking about the gifts that the Spirit bestowed upon the church. 1 Corinthians 12.30, and here you're going to see a list of rhetorical questions. When you have a rhetorical question, it demands an answer that's obvious. In this case, the answer is No. So he asked the question, Paul does, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? No. That's not given to every Christian. By the way, this, the point is that's why we need one another. That's why the hand can't, or the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. We all need because we all have different gifts. So not all have the gifts of healing, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? What's the obvious answer? No. So then why would speaking in tongues be the gift demonstrating that you have the fullness of the Spirit. Not all Christians are given that. Okay, so again, it's a very problematic thing. Now, what I want to do is show you here that all Christians indeed have the Spirit and are those who are called to be filled by the Spirit, meaning we acquiesce to the doctrines of Christ rather than the doctrines of this age. Let me show you a passage that should be in all of our minds when we see that every Christian has the Spirit. Let's look at Romans 8, 8 through 9. Notice Paul says here, he says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. First thing I want to point out is that there are only two spheres of existence on the planet. Paul is saying that you're either in the flesh, think of that as a camp, You're in the flesh. Now, what's the flesh stand for? Unregenerate man. Those dominated by sin, death, and destined to hell. You're either in that sphere, or you are what? You're in the spirit. Therefore, you have righteousness that's been given to you by Christ. You don't have death looming over you because you have eternal life. And one day, you're not going to be in hell. You're going to be with the Lord. Okay, so it's only two spheres. Now, notice... In the flesh, it says they cannot even please God. What does it say in Hebrews eleven six? How is it that we can please God? It's only by faith. So think about the implication of that. I know I'm going from Paul in Romans to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven six, but let's make an equation here. If you cannot please God by being in the flesh, and the only way to please God is by faith, that means you can't come to faith. And if you can't come to faith while you're in the flesh, you're still in your sins. You're still in rebellion against God. Your sins have not been removed. They're still being being held against you. So in the flesh, you can't do anything pleasing to God. Now, if you're in the Spirit, by definition, the Spirit is the one who brings you to faith in Christ, where you do have forgiveness of sins. Now, the other thing I want to point out is, notice here the logic of this bold. Here we have a hypothetical syllogism. Some years ago, I taught logic in Gospel of Grace Fellowship, and I want to just bring this out for you. Notice you have an if and an implied then. That's called a conditional statement or a hypothetical syllogism. So the condition is, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ implied then, then he does not belong to him. Okay, now in logic, the if portion is what's called the antecedent, that which comes before The second part, the then, is the consequent. Now, why am I laboring this point? Because in a hypothetical syllogism, the only valid move you can do with it is you can either affirm the antecedent, which we already have here, or you can deny the consequent. Okay, that's the only thing you can do. In other words, if you try to deny the antecedent, you're an error. It's invalid. You can't do that. So what I'm going to show you is let's here for the sake of doing logic and looking at the implication of scripture, let's deny the consequent. Do you remember in math, if you subtract a negative number, you're really adding a positive number, aren't you? In the same way, if we're going to negate this where it says, then he does not belong to him, let's negate it or deny it, say he does belong to him. That would be valid logically. Therefore, we have to negate this If he does belong to him, he does have the spirit. That is logically valid because we are denying the consequent and because this is scripture that is inerrant, that means we have a conclusion that must follow. It's not, well, it may be. It's necessary. We have reached a necessary conclusion. It is a valid inference using logic, meaning we've done our reasoning correctly, and it has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, so we know that the data is sound. It's good. Therefore, we know that if, where it says, then he does belong to Christ, it must mean that you have the Holy Spirit. So, dear ones, why are there some who are saying then, well, some Christians have the Spirit and not others? It is a necessary conclusion from Romans 8, 8 through 9 that every Christian has the spirit. Everyone. Yes, Brian.
2: When we see these bizarre type things happening, like he mentioned drunk bartender or something like that, but Mm. people falling out, people rolling in aisles, people laughing hysterically, I'm not going to say speaking in tongues because I don't want to go down that road. I believe there's proper speaking in tongues. But anyway, what exactly do you think is going on? Is this a manifestation of doctrine of demons? Is this Satan putting confusion into the church? What say you?
0: Yeah, well, what say I is that I don't know what's going on. But what I I can know... Yeah, what I can know is, as Bob has mentioned, we do know a work of the Spirit, which is the confession of Christ. That's why Bob is talking about epistemological. Epistemology has to do, how do you know what you know? And so what I can tell you is what the Scripture reveals. God, first of all, is not the author of confusion, right? So I was at, just to let you know a little bit of my background, I came to faith as an as a instructor, a flight instructor, out at Flying Scotchman was the name of my company, back in the 90s, the early 90s. And I, the guy who prayed with me was a former German Luftwaffe pilot. His name was Alfred Hauser. And he, just real quick, I'm sorry to give you so much background, but it's an interesting story. He flew the JU-87 with Hans Rudel, was the most decorated aviator the Germans had ever had on the Eastern Front. Well, you know like the Marine Corps has their own air arm? The SS troops had their own air arm, and they chose the best pilots. Well, Alfred was one of them. But because he was attached to the SS, everyone assumed that he was a Nazi and hated Jews. So he fled to Argentina. Well, when he became a Christian down in Argentina and he came to the United States, he had a ministry to Jews because he loved them and he felt so horrible about the Holocaust. Well, a couple weeks prior to meeting him for the first time, I had seen an airplane crash where I saw a, a family burned to death in an airplane and at that moment, I knew that I had to understand whether the Bible was true or something else was because I didn't, I didn't want to die with uncertainty. And God had my attention. Well, it was Alfred Hauser who prayed and explained the gospel to me a couple weeks later after that incident. Well, he went to Mac Hammond's church. And Mac Hammond, of course, now, to be fair, Alfred was in his late 80s at the time. And every time I was with him at church, he'd just pass out. I mean, I mean, just fall asleep. He was in the beginning stages of dementia and Alzheimer's. So I don't know if he ever really heard what they were saying. But I'm there, and I remember being brought into a room, and they say, well, just start speaking this. You go, ah, 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 and eventually the tongue will come. Well, I'm starting to read, well, wait a minute. In the Bible, doesn't it say you have to have an interpreter if you're going to do this? Well, there was no interpreter. And isn't this something that's supposed to be given to me by the Spirit? Why am I trying to bring it about by my own effort. As if, hey, you know, do 135 pounds for 10 reps four times a day and eventually it'll bench 300. You know, I mean, you're just going to do it yourself. So all of a sudden I'm called to be a spiritual do-it-yourselfer and I'm like, this is not a spiritual gift. So that's what got me thinking uh, critically about the charismatic movement. So to answer your question, Brian, what we do know from the scriptures is that a true work of the spirit brings the confession of Christ. And whether or not someone is rolling on the ground Because they're intoxicated, because they're mentally ill, because of the power of suggestion, or it's satanic, I don't know. But all I can say is I'm going to judge everything by whether Christ is confessed. And I, too, was in a lot of sermons that I heard where the Spirit was supposedly there and not elsewhere, and Christ was never confessed. Who He is, what He did, why we need Him, and how do we receive Him by faith alone that was never confessed. And therefore, I have to say, as Bob said epistemologically, that is not a work of the Spirit. That's what I can know. So, so the other thing, we're just in the dark. I can't tell you why they do what they do. I was at one meeting where a guy stuck his head in a fern plant and told all the audience, his name was Doug Stanton, we're at a strip mall and he's preaching before hundreds of people and all of a sudden he said, the Spirit's telling me I'm going to stick my head in the fern plant. Okay? Why don't you tell us about who Christ is? Yeah and what he's done rather than sticking your head in a fern plant, Amen. right? The latter, sticking your head in the fern plant makes me think you're crazy, but confessing Christ is edifying to everyone. Yeah, Scott.
2: So the way I think of it is um, if, someone, if someone's claiming that you have to speak in tongues to prove you're uh, filled with the Spirit, they're in the flesh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, very well. It's a statement from the flesh. It doesn't conform to the word that the Apostle Paul gave who speaks for Christ, and that word was given and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you're right. It's a work of the flesh to say that someone has to speak in tongues in order to have the Spirit. It doesn't follow from the text of Scripture. It's a word of man in the flesh, not from the Spirit. Well said. Other it's thing, error. The other, one,
2: the other one thing I wanted to say is um, the, when you have these revival meetings with uh, everybody laughing in the aisles or out of control or something. Uh, That's not the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of dissipation.
0: (laughs) Well said. Um, Remember Paul distinguishes between the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues? And he says that if if someone would prophesy, it edifies all. But he says if the unbeliever comes to us, and you're speaking in tongues, won't they think that you're just out of your mind? But the idea of prophesying means you're confessing the person and work of Christ. That is edifying to all. And remember, we know from Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. How do we know if someone is prophesying about who Christ is, what he did, that he, they won't be brought to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins? So that's why Paul is saying that, yes, prophecy, confessing who Christ is, is superior. Yes, Laverne. I
4: have a question about number two. When yes. it talks about being filled in the Spirit, isn't that the epi in the Greek that was used on the Old Testament saints? For instance, Samson, he would be, the, the Spirit would come upon him, epi, and then he, would, he had the strength to kill the Philistines. Or David, it came upon him and other Old Testament saints. Well... That epi is used in the New Testament
0: in, when Paul was in I'm Acts. I'm sorry, what, what term are you using? The... E-E-P-I, epi. Oh, epi, Upon. Epi? Yep. the preposition. Okay. epi. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like an epi um, pen, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
4: So, um, but it's used also in the New Testament with yes. Paul. And I think it's interesting, I believe that you don't have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. Right. But I think it's interesting that in the book of Acts... I think three out of the four times that he laid hands on people, they did speak in tongues. That's just interesting. Yeah, (laughs) you know, we'll
0: go through that, absolutely. In fact, we'll get into that. What I'm going to do is talk about, well, why did the Gentiles receive the Spirit at a different time? And what we're going to see is that all follows. I'm glad you brought that up as a segue. Acts 1.8 is the programmatic verse in all of Acts. So Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say? They're not to know the times and the effects that are set in the Father's authority, but they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Well, interestingly enough, think about Jerusalem and Judea go hand in hand. The first Pentecost happens Jerusalem Judea as it were, Acts 2. Then it comes to Samaria in Acts 8, then in Acts 10 and Acts 19 it goes to the ends of the earth to the to those who are far off like in Acts 19 to Ephesus. And so at the bestowal of the or by the hands of the apostles you have the bestowal of the Spirit. To show number one, you don't have multiple churches. You don't have the church in Ephesus being different than the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because the same apostles are placing their hands, showing the solidarity. Remember, placing hands is always about solidarity. That's why we're not to place hands on elders too quickly. Why? Because we sh- may show solidarity with their sin if they're engaged in sin. Are you with me? Okay. So the idea of showing solidarity, laying on the hands and the bestowing of the Spirit is not normative now because we don't have modern-day apostles now, right? We only have apostles that have been once and for all placed with us. And so the idea is that the Spirit follows by the hands of the apostles Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, just as that programmatic verse shows us. And so this is not normative today. We're not going to have another Pentecost that happens somewhere in the Gentile world. That has already occurred. And so the idea is we're not to see a one-for-one relationship between what happened in, for example, Acts, and what happens during the rest of the New Covenant age. For example, when the shadow of some of the apostles would fall upon people, they were all being healed. So I'd like to say to the New Apostolic Reformation people, bring yourself, if you're really an apostle, into a local hospital. They will all be healed. Every one of them. They'll bat a thousand. Every one of them, where is it? Well, we don't do that. It's provable that it doesn't happen. All they'd have to do is go into the local hospital, heal everyone there, and it could be objective. They can't do it. And the reason they can't do it is because the signs and wonders were designed by God not to show that God exists. Everyone knew that. It was to show who spoke for him. And it was the apostles who spoke uniquely. What's that? It was to show what? Who spoke for God.
4: Who spoke for God.
0: Right. And that's why you see in Hebrews that says God testifying with them through signs and wonders. Well, if everyone does signs and wonders, well, then everyone is a spokesman for God. Everyone writes scripture. Therefore, we don't have a canon that's once and for all been handed down to the saints as we see in Jude 3. So that's the answer, I think, to that issue is why is it that we see things that occur in the book of Acts that are not occurring today? Well, because the Holy Spirit is demonstrating through the apostles that they are indeed his spokesmen. And that is why you have unique things that occur. And yeah, we, we don't need it today examples.
4: because we have the scripture to look back on and read.
0: That's right. We don't need the, the testimony of the signs and wonders. We've already had them deposited. Absolutely. Yep, well said. So with that, I'm sorry, uh, Luann, back there.
5: This is kind of getting back to that 1 Corinthians where you talked about, you know, not all perform miracles, not all have gifts of healing, not all speak in tongues. But it's kind of almost like Israel was one in the many. The church is the same. We're one in the many, the big corporate church. And it was about unity. That's how we show love for one another. And so you know what we end up seeing is a lot of division taking place and first corinthians was one of their big issues was divisions they were creating divisions over everything and so if something's going to tempt us to you know look and say oh this person's more filled with the holy spirit or this ministry's more blessed we're dividing and it's the rejecting all of first corinthians you know as far as that goes it's about well unity and what the church can do as a corporate body
0: Well said, Luann. Steve brought up Colossians 3.16, and it brings up, as you're saying that, I'm glad you said that because it brings up this unity idea. In Colossians 3.16, we'll be coming to this text as well. Notice it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. Who in here is going to say, well, some Christians have the word dwelling richly within them, but not other Christians? My point in saying that is it's the same with the filling of the Spirit. It's a call for all of us. All of us are to have this. It's not just for some, it's for all. And that's the idea, this idea of being filled with righteousness. It's not for some Christians, it's for all Christians. Uh, Being filled with the Word of God, it's not for some, it's for all. Being filled with joy, it's not for some, it's for all. So that's what we want to get away from is this idea that there's some Christians here, but not other Christians that have the Spirit or the fullness of the Spirit. That's not what's being uh, referred to. So yes, it's about a unity. Let me come back to this Romans 8, 8 through 9. There's two concepts that I, I won't be able to get to all of them today. Obviously, we only have a few minutes left. But I want to build on this idea of sphere. I want us to think about being in the Spirit versus being in the flesh. Then I want to relate that to Christ being the baptizer. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's very clear that Christ is the one who baptizes us. He baptizes us by the Spirit or in the Spirit. So let's look again at Romans 8, 8 through 9, where Paul said, "...and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him." Again, you have two spheres. So you're either in the flesh, therefore you're an unbeliever, or you're in the Spirit, you're in Christ. Now, let's relate this to Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Doesn't Paul rejoice that God rescued us from the domain of darkness? Now, what would be the domain of darkness? That would be being in the flesh. And where did he bring us? Into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's in the Spirit. Does everyone see that? So it's one of two domains. You're either in the flesh, outside of Christ, sins are not forgiven, hell-bound, or you're in the spirit. Now, what I want to show you is that Christ is depicted as the one who baptizes, in other words, he places us in this camp. And so what we often think about is this baptism of the spirit is some mystical magical thing. What it is is Christ placing us within the protective care and the edification of the camp of the spirit while he's away let's look at a text that I'll start building the case. Jesus is the baptizer. It's not the Holy Spirit who's the agent of baptizing. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who baptizes all believers in the spirit. Look at John chapter 7. Please turn your Bibles there and we'll finish on this. John 7, verses 37 through 39. Now, as you're turning to John 7, 37 through 39, I'm sorry, Nancy, I'll come to you. I'll come to you right after this. Uh, John 7, 37 through 39. Remember, this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember what would happen, the seven day feast? Every day, the priests go down to the Pool of Siloam. They take a flag in this golden vessel and they would fill it with water. In an entourage, they'd bring it to the temple. They pour it out, saying, One day God is going to do this with the Spirit. On the last day, called the great day of the feast, listen to what happens. It says, Now, on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, notice the commentary here, verse 39. It says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Stop there. Does it say that some who believe in him are going to receive? Or does it say, those who believed in him were to receive? Those to whom believed in him were to receive. It's all Christians. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not glorified. Jesus is the one who dispenses the Spirit. He is the baptizer. Therefore, if you belong to Christ, you've been baptized in the Spirit. That's what it means to be baptized in the Spirit, to be belong to Christ. He's the one who places you here. Amen. Didn't John say... The Baptist, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me, is that the Spirit, or is it the second person of the Trinity, Jesus? It's Jesus. The one who comes after me, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Who is the baptizer anyway? It's Jesus. Yes. Go ahead, Nancy.
4: Well, in John 7, I love this this scripture, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to
0: you. Amen. Amen. Well said, Nancy. Thank you. Yeah, so, the concluding thought that I want you to have in your mind is that Jesus is the baptizer. If you belong to Jesus, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is what's biblical. Show me a text in which we have the Holy Spirit being the one who is the agent of baptizing. Jesus Christ is the agent of baptizing us either in the sphere of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit in the entirety of the New Testament. It is Jesus who does the baptizing. He places us. So if you belong to Jesus, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's conclude with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what your scriptures say, that it does bring unity to know that every Christian... All those who have trusted in you have been placed in the Spirit until the day that you come for us. The greatest gift you ever dispensed to us when you went on high was the sending of the Spirit and all the gifts associated. Lord, we praise you for them. We give you thanks that we can be assured that this Spirit will intercede for us with words or with groanings too deep for words, that we may be conformed to the image of your Son, that we may enter into glory on the last day. We thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.